I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. Oh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every Hi, everyone. I am back with David Klugman, and we are talking about the feeling life. Hello, David. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So today we've got three questions from listeners, and I'm going to read off the first one so we can talk about it. The first question is, I was listening to a Christian-based podcast, and I started thinking about different cultures and all the different theories people have about life, religion, morals, and the best way to live your life. Out of all of these different types of people from different religions and so on, who is the happiest? Who does the most for others? Who spreads the most positivity? Or is there not an answer for that question? How much does religion play a part in it at all? Yeah, I I think... um... That's a, you know, obviously that's a, a huge question. Right. <laughs> mentions to it, but it's a good question. And, and um, you know, the, the, just a couple of things I'd, I'd want to go to. Again, I'm just speaking from the perspective of, of the Feeling Life trilogy you know, up through, uh, you know, the, the other two books as well. Um, so when I, when I come upon a word like happiest, I would say, well, what, what we're really going for in, in the Feeling Life perspective is meaning mm. and if, if meaning sometimes results in happiness or even misery it's a lot better than no meaning right and you know unless you want to be a nihilist and contradict yourself and say the meaning of life is that there is no meaning <laughs> <laughs> right it's kind of cracked me up but anyway nihilism is untenable in other words um, because they're clinging to just a, a, a negative meaning as being the meaning and saying that there therefore is no meaning I think what we what we want more than happiness, and I think this is something that gets confused sometimes um, in the culture. I think we want meaning a lot more than happiness. I think we want to feel more than we want to feel good. We want to feel authentically. We want to feel what we're feeling. We want to be in touch with it. Whatever it is, if it's honest, it's going to get us to the next place. As opposed to putting on things that we've been told are the earmarks of a happy, successful person, like, gee, I'm happy. Hmm. That's great happiness. I have nothing against happiness. Only a fool would. 
I'm just saying that I, I think, you know, happiness is in polarity with unhappiness. Everything is its opposite. The, 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 the deeper, uh, the deep polarity I'm going here for here is, is meaning versus no meaning. And when there's no meaning, there's no chance of happiness. When there's meaning, sometimes there's happiness. There's lots of other things too. Agreed. I think about something too where um, you can get into magical thinking or you know grandiose thinking, and there's certainly plenty of people out there that live in that space. Um, and you can feel extraordinarily blissful in those in those moments and boy is it a long fall to wake up from them <laughs> it, it can be i mean i'm in agreement with you there's nothing at all wrong with those kinds of practices but you know by that what i would call woo-woo spirituality you know on either side there's this danger on, on the one side, there's the danger of materialism, of getting too interested in the physical world, in the sensuous world, just so interested that you become identified with it and lose your soul. On the other side is you, one gets interested in this, this capacity to sort of lift up off the earth and kind of move into a dreamy kind of three feet off the earth walking around feeling, mm -hmm. um, which is equally as dangerous. We need both sides, but in balance, the danger of the, of the dreaminess or what in the old days would be called the luciferic temptation would eventually be the elimination of the personal ego or the self. Hmm. And, and so these forces are working all the time on either side of what's trying to balance them in the center, whatever words you want to give to them. People chase bliss. However, they, it's like a drug. And so let's dig deeper into the whole materialistic piece and why that's so why is that so dangerous? Well, I, um, well, there's, those are two things. Bl the chasing of bliss, I, I think, you know, in the 70s, we catharsis therapy, gestalt and transactional stuff, pillow beating, <laughs> I don't remember all that stuff, you know, beat the pillow, get your anger out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a lot to that stuff. But uh, you would notice that people, especially I would run these workshops with, you know, with, with, my, with my friend and, and um and amherst and you would see like almost we would we ended up calling them like catharsis junkies <laughs> they they mm -hmm. kept needing to have that experience of the the release after the cathartic expression which is a fine thing again but if that you just keep going for that you can become addicted to it it doesn't really take you anywhere i think the same thing is uh, true of anything that you chase like bliss would be another example um Bliss is a quality to cultivate. It's really an act of grace. You can't will bliss. <laughs> At least I, I don't know. Maybe Buddha <laughs> will bliss. Uh, you know, I didn't know him personally. So I think these acts of grace that come because we're doing our practice and we're staying as true to ourselves as we can, we trip on, on, on the grace of bliss sometimes. Um, I don't think that's, you know, therefore, oh, the whole answer to the universe reveals itself. It's just another aspect of the experience. And it, needs to be filed in accordingly. I think sometimes for me, when I've felt really blissful, um, sometimes it's been hanging out with someone who's really a nefarious person. <laughs> right. and, and the crash after that is so painful that uh, when I get close to bliss again, 
at different times in my life, I um, I think I don't let myself go there because I think I do not want that rug pulled out like it was before. It wasn't worth it. Well, that, yeah, that's a that's a sort of a complicated statement because at least if I'm hearing you right, on, on one level, what you mean by bliss is the, the sense of really being connected to another person and, and, and the joy that can come from that. And I think that's very valuable. But I, again, I think if we rush into that, and, you know, and I talk about this in, in The Feeling Life a lot, you know, it's, it's the, the romance, the early phase of, of romance where there's all this energy and all this potential for bliss and all this good feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fantasy is, is that this person is, you know, contacting all these old needs and archaic uh, elements of my personality, my feeling life and, and somehow answering them. And this is, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And of course, at that stage in the relationship, you're having a relationship with yourself and your idea of this person. There's, right. there isn't a real relationship yet. Um, and so that transition is 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 a is an important one. It's one that I map out in the book: the movement from the romantic relationship to the real relationship. Um, but I think you know, going back to your notion of bliss, there's this sense that if I'm not feeling good, if I'm not feeling blissful, if I'm not feeling good in my relationship or whatever it is, then I'm doing something wrong because I should be feeling good if I was doing it right. Yeah. That's, that's just wrongheaded. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That I do know. <laughs> I just know, and I know the person who asked this question and they, they talk a lot about happiness and, you know, it's so important to them. They're very young too, but they, it's so important to them to figure out who, who is happy and why are they happy because they're chasing that happiness as well. Mm-hmm. Well, again, just to go back to the happiness, I, my experience is that the people that are capable of receiving the most deep and meaningful happiness when it comes are people that are on track with what I would call meaning and what, what things mean and what things mean in their life, not in some abstract way of chasing something, but in a very real way, scientific way, a very mm. active way, seeing their feelings, understanding what this means, what that means. It doesn't all feel good. That's not the point. Some feels good, some feels not good. The point is meaning leads to you know humanization. And that's a you know that's another point that that we get to in one of these questions, you know, which is uh, how the psychology and especially the psychiatric community can reinforce the dehumanization that, that so many of us are already suffering from. Absolutely. So that does bring us to the next question, which was, what have you experienced in terms of a patient who comes? We're going just, okay. I just want to say, who does the most for others? Mm. I would say that speaks to level of service, and it could be different in any religious organization. I've seen Buddhists do more for others than Christians. I've seen some Christians. You know, it's all about level of service is, is, is why we do for others. Or at least that's that's the there's the spiritual ground for it, unless we're just looking to score points, in which case it's pretty empty. Right. And then right. the other thing, uh, who spreads the most positivity? See, these words pop out at me like positivity. I would substitute that with authenticity. Let's say if what you're capable of, of of being is as authentic as you can be, then what's ever positive and, and otherwise is going is going to is going to flow from. It. Whereas if you set out to be positive. I remember I had a, a very dear friend in California when I was, a, I had a business, I was in my 20s, 
and and I mean, I love this guy deeply, like a brother, but we were very different. And I was sort of the more of the curmudgeon type, and he was more of the you know California, everything's great. And he looked at me one day and he said, "You're you know always so negative or whatever he said." And I looked at him and said. I would rather be substantially depressed than superficially positive like you are all the time. <laughs> and that's a buzzkill, yeah. <laughs> it moved our relationship a little bit. We understand it's a polarity, you know, it wasn't like one was right and one was the other. But I think, again, seeking meaning is, is, a, is a, I think, a much more significant track than seeking happiness. But, you know, you can do what you want. And I think the same thing is true of positivity versus authenticity mm. because authenticity implies kind of vulnerability and and then you know how much does religion play into it all that we could talk about for seven years it's a great question. Right. really important you know I, I go back to one of my favorite derivations of the word religion from the latin religio which simply means respect for, for what is sacred mm. In that sense, I, I think if we're respecting what is sacred, we're working to identify the non-material, and, and, and that's a religious activity, in, just etymologically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just did a show where one of the questions was, uh, that was posed to myself and a forensic psychologist that I do shows with once a week, and it was about, you know, the decline of American society. And do we think that uh, the fact that fewer people go to church now than before or have a religious belief, do we think that that's the reason why there's a decline? And I, I don't like those kind of questions. <laughs> and I, my, my, I would just reverse that. I mean, it's obviously not a reason. It's a symptom. People aren't going. People aren't going to church as much and aren't engaging in religion as much for a number of reasons. But because there, there, there's nothing advertised there that's that speaks to what their real needs are. You know, you've got you, you know, you've got religions all around with dogmas that are three, four, seven thousand, two thousand years old. Um, these things are, you know, these things are they're they're complex. But I, I, I think. For me, anyway, and again, the perspective in the in in the trilogy and the feeling life is not a religious one. It's but it is one that's interested in the record of spiritual progress over these six, seven thousand years that that have been in recorded history and some before. What does it mean? What does it mean that Buddha happened and then Christ happened and then nothing happened? Right? Etc. Like, what do these things mean? They mean something, just like you know. I mean, to not understand what, what Buddha did would be to, and, and then to talk about spirituality would be like trying to talk about gravity without knowing you're Newton. Mm. The, the, the challenge now is to get non-material scientifically, spiritual science, non-material science, not woo-woo, let's go in the clouds. That's just another deception. The materialist deception and and the dreamy deception—they're both ones that we have to watch out for. It's, it's you know it's, it's and balance. It's been you know the theme of these books anyway. Yes. Are you ready? Are yeah. you ready for the next one? Okay. 
The next question is, what have you experienced in terms of a patient who comes to you with severe mental anguish, who seems to be merely who seems to merely be figuring out that the construct they've been living under is just that, a construct. To the outside world, this person is so mentally, quote unquote, disturbed that traditional psychiatry would have them locked in a mental institution. Yes, and often does. <laughs> yes. Professionally and personally on that. Um, yeah, I have. There's no love lost between me and our current uh, state of, of psychiatry in this country um, or psychology for that matter. But the thing that really stuck out at me is, is yes, we're, you know, as we talked about before, again, my, my perspective, these views, it's not my perspective alone, but it, it is a narrow perspective, is that we live in the culture of idolatry. And a simple understanding of what idolatry means is outsides with no insides. So you've got, you know, you've got marching apes that were turned into humans. But what about consciousness? What about our internal life? Oh, just science doesn't have time for that. That's called idolatry. It's empty inside. I think the same thing is true of our psychiatric system and our psychiatric assessments and the way they look at people. It's, it's, it's been uh, infiltrated by medication and by resurgence of behaviorism. So there's just a looking at the outsides and the behaviors and, oh, that person is doing this. So let's say a person's construct, so to speak, or what I would call a thought form, is such that they're really in some kind of anguish and they're exhibiting the symptoms of what we might call bipolar. They're going up and down a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to reach that person, the, the, the modern-day psychiatrist would take a two-minute look at the person and go, okay, down into the hole with, you know, with the other side goes until you're ready to come back to the world. That's how it's dealt with today, unfortunately. Not too long ago, there was a, a psychoanalyst named Heinz Kohut who said a wonderful thing about, uh, you know, dealing with borderline patients, which were very disorganized patients versus narcissistic patients. And he was very big on empathy. Um, he was the first psychoanalyst to really introduce empathy as a real tool into the psychoanalytic situation. And he said, if you are able to empathize with a borderline, they become a narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> <laughs> in other words the power of that human connection is, is is what that therapy is all about and it's what enables healing to occur um that was happening in some of the later psychoanalysis and still does in some of it and happens in some psychotherapy but by and large the way we treat people is like i said you know like automatons who need to behave better yeah i know i have a lot of uh well not a lot but some psychiatrists that will come on and say well um, you know, I give them a lot of medication and then they, and then they fit in. And I, I know where the person I'm speaking to means, you know, sometimes, um, who, depending on who it is, but at other times with another person where I don't really know them or their backstory, I think what a dangerous is that I, I don't want to fit in. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it's, and it's not that, there's anything I have anyway, personally, again, against medication if it's needed. But if it's applied before there's been any human connection mm-hmm. of what's going on inside there, you know, there is no inside for these people. That's what you got to get. There's no inside. And, and science and materialism have, have endorsed that and encouraged it. So the only inside we have is this abstract idea in our head that we have this inner self and life but it's not a visceral experience that we live and feel in the trees and the breeze every day of our lives, which is how we should. 
experiences. Mm. You know, you want to talk about happiness? I don't know about that's happiness, but it's meaning and fulfillment. To live like that versus like an automaton who's trying to behave properly so they can get the Kardashian goodies. Oh, yeah. Talk about a decline of society. <laughs> following that uh, I actually I had I was watching someone uh, the other day who is a celebrity and they said uh, you know it used to be that you didn't brag about your car and your you, you kind of downplayed how much money you have and now if you don't show up in a neon green Lamborghini with you know gold rings and a ton of chains uh, and talk about how rich you are you're you're kind of a nobody in, in terms of the celebrity world. I thought that was an interesting statement. And he was referring to, you know, what the Kardashians had brought to the table. Well, they helped, you know, the, the Kardashians didn't do anything single-handedly. They, right. they were just that expression at the time. And I kind of saw a lot of that move more toward that. And again, I, I think it's, it's fallout of a materialistic mindset. In other words, I'm not valid unless I can demonstrate to you how I am materially valid, then I am valid. Mm. And it's empty. You, you, you have, as soon as you do that, you'll have two, two seconds or two minutes of like, oh, gee, I'm valid, and that's great. And then you have to go out and buy a new gold chain. Trust right. me. And another car. It's the oops fallacy, <laughs> which we've already talked about. <laughs> but it's pervasive and insidious. All right, are you ready for the next one? Sure, let's go. Okay. Third question is, how much do you think we create our own reality? I find myself having to wear a cloak of fitting in, like we talked about before, with most of society, but my escape is to be around uh, my other friends where I can be whoever I am. The transition from being there and with others can feel like a plane in a downward draft. How do you make those kinds of transitions? Yeah, I think, again, I think that's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, there are two real questions I hear there. Um, one is, do we create our own reality, which I'll put on the side. The other is the difficulty of uh, this polarity between um, what Jung used to call the persona that we all kind of wear in society and, and our, and our self, our truer self, which is not a mask. And um, personally, I think the work, and, and again, it's, it's what the, Feeling life and, and this trilogy is, is working toward is to kind of almost collapse that polarity so that there isn't that distance between, uh, or at least there's not a Grand Canyon between who I am authentically as I'm being whoever I am, as, as this person said, and I'm being who I need to be in order to function in whatever my role is in society. Mm. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a polarity, not a duality. Right, the duality is like two separate things. The polarity is like yin and yang. There's a little black in the white part, and there's a little white in the black part, and they're trying to inform one another so there can be a synthesis, and a higher level is achieved. That, that's how I would sort of look at that. It's a very difficult polarity. It's not easy, um, but I sympathize with with what the person is saying here about that. But that's how I would address it, at least preliminarily. And the idea, again, I think we talked a little bit about this, that, uh, you know, that we create our own reality can be misleading because, as I said, I think you think about that too much in those terms. It's so abstract, you end up not knowing what the hell you mean by any of it. Right. right? So rather, I, I like, 
and and again to repeat the the invitation in in the work I, I'm I'm talking about is is to participate in the creation of so-called reality or to participate in one's first-hand experience of the phenomenal world, which is the same thing because that's the only reality you're ever going to know. <laughs> and this conscious participation tends to clarify the distinction between the material and the non-material dimension, if you pay attention. And that clarifies a lot, right? Um, because let's say, for instance, you're relating it to this fitting in experience, you're going to a situation where you're fitting in and you realize that there's just no room for the non-material with these people. But that doesn't mean they're bad or that I can't fit in with them, I just have to not try to bring that stuff for validation or view, because it's going to go badly for me if I do. Mm. But you need to have that kind of clarity between what those, right? In other words, a non-material dimension is your feelings. So if you bring feelings to people that are not in touch with feelings and are certainly not going to be responsive to yours, you're going to have a really bad time. Yes. If you see that limitation ahead of time and that non-material dimension is something you're able to regulate and hold on yourself as you put the energy into just being that persona, it's going to go much better and it's going to work that polarity better and it's going to evolve. It's not just going to stay stuck as in going back and forth to work person and private person. You know, that's just the bore who wants to do that. Let me ask a question about the word persona. How long has that been a part of our awareness? Um, well, like I said, I cited Jung. I think Jung was the one who made it very popular. Um, he made a distinction between the persona, which was kind of a mask or something that we are when we move into society versus, he didn't use the word true self, Winnicott did, but versus the self or the true self. And he didn't talk about them as disparaging to one another. He sort of, but he did talk about them as kind of inescapable. Right. And so I would say that's like, that's like the forties and fifties. Right. A long time. Yes. Yeah, 100 years or so, yeah. And I think it's an interesting question because, you know, I haven't really done the scholarship, but, you know, prior to that, we could talk a lot about how people cut their figures in society, but it was different than I have this private thing over here and I have this public thing over here. It was all out. <laughs> hmm. You know, it was much more all out. We didn't have that kind of private hidden space that we have now. How about, uh, you know, in terms of social media and how we, how we portray ourselves online? What about it? Well, that being a persona. Um, I guess, yeah, that's, that, that to me is more like, you know, persona has been around a long time. If you go back, yes, to like, it has. You go back to like John Dunn, you know, I mean, the way he had the portraits done and the way he had them. I mean, he was a self promoter of the high and he was doing it for history and posterity as well. Um, he knew he was a great poet and he knew what he was writing mattered. <laughs> and he, he, you know, he cut the figure and had the right people paint his pictures and et cetera, et cetera. And, and he wasn't alone, believe me. So, so this notion of, of building up an image, which is maybe a better word than persona. Mm -hmm. Um, is has, has been has been around forever and i think the only problem i see with it is when you're not conscious that you're constructing an image uh, or playing a part versus um being real with yourself because there is a difference you know it's like i grew up around actors so you know i'm qualified <laughs> you're playing a part that's great who are you when you're not playing a part right 
you have to be playing a part to be somebody or to feel like you are somebody. So you're constantly, so again, there's that emptiness inside, which is the idolatry effect, right? That's the idolatry effect. And the only way there's meaning gets flushed into the system is I go out there and I plug in in some way and I don't know, get some kind of goodie or, or a baddie, depending on my psychological needs. Mm. So I'm, I'm, you know, obviously this isn't, you know, I haven't figured out rocket science, but um, forever ago, having a painting painted of yourself, that was kind of, you know, what social media does today. Uh, that was the way that it was done. And then it was photographs. And now we can, you know, paint a picture in a different way by utilizing social media and crafting what your life looks like. Cause there's so many people that, um, you know, they will take a picture of themselves. Uh, actually, there was a, a rapper that was on a plane, and he was um, he was caught putting up a a picture of himself, uh, or actually, it wasn't even of himself. It was a picture of a jet and a limo, and he was talking about how he's arriving at this event to um, to sing there, I guess, and uh, or to rap there. And he was telling all of his fans on social media, oh, I'm getting on my, you know, my getting in my limo and getting on my Learjet. And he was actually sitting in coach at the time. And that was, you know, the, the plane he was taking to go to this event. Right. All right let me do it this way. Right. It, it's, it's an addiction. And, and I think that it, it's an airsats identity. It's not a real identity. But mm-hmm. everyone's doing it, and people are making a lot of money at it. Yes. And so it's all valid. And those are the things that value. Everyone's doing it, and it makes money. What are you going to say in America that's going to talk that down? Exactly. Exactly. The thing that I find fascinating around this, and I'm finding more people pulling away from social media because they realize how unhealthy it is. And it, it speaks to so many ways and I, that are unhealthy, but this kind of behavior, the painting, then the photograph, then, you know, putting all this, this life, this isn't new. People have been doing this, showing off, trying to, you know, present an image of themselves. This has been going on forever. It's just that we have a new platform for how to do it. That, that's we have a new platform. And I think we have a much more extreme uh, number of, of people, you could just say, or just a whole culture oriented toward, and the word I would use is celebrity. Yes. I have to achieve some kind of celebrity, then I'm going to be valid. Now, that's not different. I mean, again, that's the oops fallacy straight up. And that's been going on as long as personas have been going on. <laughs> right. The, the illusion that whatever it is you're going to grab out there is going to somehow change your inner subjective constitution of the way that you are and feel about yourself never going to happen you may become the great you may become another jay-z you know the second billionaire rapper but if if you haven't started with some sense of of self and who you are that's not going to give it to you in fact that's going to confuse you it's going to make it harder trust me i've seen that too it complicates things when you get what you dreamed and believed was going to finally make it feel right and it doesn't Mm-hmm. And that's a crisis, and you don't have anybody to talk to because you're on top of the world. You got everything. Most people go crazy at that point. My dad once told me a story about an actor he knew, a young guy. I can't remember his name. They were he was like 25 at the time. The actor and my dad was about the same age, and he went to see him on Broadway. When he went backstage 
before the show, because he was his friend and he wanted to say, hey, good luck or whatever. He walked in, he knocked on the dressing room and said, come in. And the guy was naked and sweating and lying on the floor just in a complete meltdown mode. He just, mm -hmm. success had, you know, just crushed him. And every night before getting on stage, it was, you know, it was a full on panic attack and I'm going to lose who I am. And I, you know, all this stuff. And I think that's a, even now much more so and a danger with the, with the uh, social media is that it dangles out like, Hey, celebrities just around the corner, just grab here and bite. You'll be there. Right. And it's not nothing substantial is, but I think we have a whole generation of people that have been trained to believe that that is not so that you can just grab it and there it is and paste it on your face and you've achieved it. Yeah. I think, I mean, I've watched it myself lead people to do a more, just the most immoral horrific things because they're attaching their ego and this perceived stardom to something that, you know, anyone else involved in it was there to do, you know, good, nothing that had anything to do with celebrity. It was there to be, uh, let's say, give an example, since, you know, you, you did grow up with that celebrity piece let's say you do a film um, and people get glossy eyed when they hear about doing, you know, anything to do with a film, but it's a film about uh, a bunch of do-gooders. It's a film that's supposed to be done for free to help people. And one person in the mix can get so that's not their idea of it. Their idea is this is the thing that's going to launch me into celebrity. And so they kind of poison the well for everybody that's there just to do this free thing and put it on film so it reaches more people. Yeah, I think I think that kind of stuff happens all all the time, unfortunately. And absolutely, I, I think the whole the whole concept. You know, one day I'll read you either offline or online. That there's a section in that, that poem that I told you I've written, that epic kind of poem. Um, it's and it's on celebrity and it draws on my own personal experience as well as sort of engages the topic. Um, but, it, but it's, it's something I've obviously thought about a lot because I, th I think it's got really corrosive effects. I think, you know, one, one, at one point, the line in the poem says, uh, if, if it's, uh, you know, if it's the madness they seek, then at least that would make some sense because one has to go mad to get out. But if it be madness seeking itself, <laughs> You see, that's, that's sort of my point. If it's madness and you're seeking the madness, you get mad and you pop out of the illusion. But mm. if it's madness seeking itself, you stay in it forever. And what kind of a person and what is their diagnosis <laughs> that stays there forever? I, I think we've been, um, I think it's, I, I think you have to look not so much at the blaming the person, but looking at the society. Right. We talk so much about family of origin, and we don't talk nearly enough about culture of origin. Our parents don't drop from the sky and suck milk from the earth, and neither do we. Our parents grow and grow out their leaves on the trees of our culture, and any dysfunction that happens in our family of origin reflects dysfunction that's happening in our culture as well. And when we get out of our family of origin, we're going to hit that even harder than we did in our families. And if we don't understand how they're linked, you know, and our psychology doesn't do enough of that. Mm breaking down both like okay your dad was this way but he was also influenced by radical materialism he couldn't entertain the notion of spirit so of course he couldn't see you right etc 
right? And, and that doesn't make it all better, but it gives it some context, as opposed to your dad was just this guy who just blah, 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 right? It's, it's not complete enough. Um, so we need, to, we need to take the culture into consideration much more deeply. And, and again, not to let people off the hook, but, right. but to inform them, like, okay, so you've been brainwashed into believing this. And that's what it is. It's all brainwashed. I mean, you know, the presumptions of materialistic science are brainwashed, not its products, which are beautiful, but its presumptions are, 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 are brainwashing. And, and they brainwash us to idolatry. And that's, so again, that's what we live for. When someone's reaching for that celebrity online somehow, it's so empty. They don't know it yet, but it's so empty. Once you get it, there's nothing inside. And that's what's really sick and wrong about social media. There's nothing inside, nothing authentic going on. I mean, to the extent that authentic things occur, and they do, ultimately, it's empty. You know, it's, it's right, which is why it's so fascinating that it's called social media when it's actually antisocial. Well, that's just George Orwell, you know, realizing himself <laughs> again, right? Things <laughs> that we give things that throw you off the trail of what it really is. Mm -hmm. Social isolations, it always occurred to me, and this was a long, long time ago before there was anything like social media, but you could connect with others on the internet or on even on like CB radio through your. Your, your computer and I always thought well it, it kind of helps us connect with the community but we're in complete isolation when we're doing it right <laughs> I think about that with doing a podcast I mean here I am sitting in front of a mic I'm not looking at an audience I am connecting with whoever it is I'm speaking with that person but I'm I don't know I don't see the faces of and have a reaction from um, people that are listening because they're listening to it whenever, you know, they get a chance to listen to it. Right. And I think that, you know, that there are shortcomings and, and, and high points to the, to the podcast. And I think that the podcast is, is authentically put out there as authentically as we can, right. And you can yep. to, 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 to provoke thought, feeling, yes. you know, and then get back. And we did, and we got three great questions back, which is why I wanted to answer them. I want it to be a communal experience. That's what we need. We don't need any more celebrities. We don't need any more stars. We need more human beings. Yes. And so, everyone's a human being. Everyone can be a human being and feel good about it. If they're not brainwashed into believing they've got to be a star to be in, before they can be an okay human being. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And... It depends on, you know, what you do with the medium. There's plenty of uh, great things that have come out of social media, wonderful things, um, amber alerts and you know, finding people that are, like I just said, an amber alert, finding people that are missing, spreading, a, a, you know, messages of hope and things like that. So it can be utilized in ways that aren't empty and meaningless, but it depends on how you're using it. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. It's true. So... Mm. Well, I did have four other questions, but we'll tackle those on our next <laughs> our next call. They came in after our last show. So David Klugman, uh, author of The Feeling Life, any last words before we close today's show? Um, no, I don't think I have any last words that are, are pithy, so I'll just go. <laughs> And listeners, if any of you want more information about David, you can go to Klugman, K-L-U-G-M-A-N, studios.com. 
All right, David, thank you so much. Yes, we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.